Book Twelve, Chapter Six of the Brothers Karamazov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated by Constance Garnett. Book Twelve, Chapter Six. The Prosecutor's Speech. Sketches of Character. Ippolit Kirillovitch began his speech, trembling with nervousness, with cold sweat on his forehead, feeling hot and cold all over by turns. He described this himself afterwards. He regarded this speech as his chef-d'oeuvre, the chef-d'oeuvre of his whole life, as his swan-song. He died, it is true, nine months later, of rapid consumption, so that he had the right, as it turned out, to compare himself to a swan singing his last song. He had put his whole heart and all the brain he had into that speech. And poor Ippolit Kirillovitch unexpectedly revealed that at least some feeling for the public welfare and the external question lay concealed in him. Where his speech really excelled was in its sincerity. He genuinely believed in the prisoner's guilt. He was accusing him not as an official duty only, and in calling for vengeance he quivered with a genuine passion for the security of society. Even the ladies in the audience, though they remained hostile to Ippolit Kirillovich, admitted that he made an extraordinary impression on them. He began in a breaking voice, but it soon gained strength and filled the court to the end of his speech. But as soon as he had finished, he almost fainted. "'Gentlemen of the jury,' began the prosecutor, "'this case has made a stir throughout Russia. But what is there to wonder at? What is there so peculiarly horrifying in it for us? We are so accustomed to such crimes. That's what's so horrible.' that such dark deeds have ceased to horrify us. What ought to horrify us is that we are so accustomed to it. And not this, or that isolated crime. What are the causes of our indifference, our lukewarm attitude to such deeds, to such signs of the times, ominous of an unenviable future? Is it our cynicism? Is it the premature exhaustion of intellect and imagination in a society that is sinking into decay in spite of its youth? Is it that our moral principles are shattered to their foundations? Or is it perhaps a complete lack of such principles among us? I cannot answer such questions. Nevertheless, they are disturbing and every citizen not only must, but ought to be harassed by them. Our newborn and still timid press has done good service to the public already, for without it we should never have heard of the horrors of unbridled violence and moral degradation which are continually made known by the press, not merely to those who attend the new jury courts established in the present reign, but to every one. And what do we read almost daily? 
of things besides which the present case grows pale, and seems almost commonplace. But what is most important is that the majority of our national crimes of violence bear witness to a widespread evil now so general among us that it is difficult to contend against it. One day we see a brilliant young officer of high society, at the very outside of his career, in a cowardly underhand way, without a pang of conscience, murdering an official who had once been his benefactor, and the servant girl, to steal his own I.O.U., and what ready money he could find on him. It will come in handy for my pleasures in the fashionable world, and for my career in the future. After murdering them, he puts pillows under the head of each of his victims. He goes away. Next, a young hero, decorated for bravery, kills the mother of his chief and benefactor, like a highwayman, and to urge his companions to join him, he asserts that she loves him like a son, and so will follow all his directions and take no precautions. Granted that he is a monster. Yet, I dare not say in these days that he is unique. Another man will not commit the murder, but will feel and think like him, and is as dishonorable in soul. In silence, alone with his conscience, he asks himself, perhaps, what is honor? And isn't the condemnation of bloodshed a prejudice? Perhaps people will cry out against me that I am morbid, hysterical, that it is a monstrous slander, that I am exaggerating. Let them say so, and heavens, I should be the first to rejoice if it were so. Oh, don't believe me. Think of me as morbid. But remember my words. If only a tenth, if only a twentieth part of what I say is true, even so, it's awful. Look how our young people commit suicide without asking themselves Hamlet's question what there is beyond, without a sign of such a question, as though all that relates to the soul and to what awaits us beyond the grave had long been erased in their minds and buried under the sands. Look at our vice, at our profligates. Fyodor Pavlovich, the luckless victim in the present case, was almost an innocent babe compared with many of them. And yet we all knew him. He lived among us. Yes, one day perhaps the leading intellects of Russia and of Europe will study the psychology of Russian crime, for the subject is worth it. But this study will come later, at leisure, when all the tragic turpsy-turvydom of today is farther behind us, so that it's possible to examine it with more insight and more impartiality than I can do. Now we are either horrified or pretend to be horrified, though we really gloat over the spectacle and love strong and eccentric sensations which trickle our cynical, pampered idleness. Or, like little children, 
we brush the dreadful ghosts away, and hide our heads in the pillow, so as to turn to our sports and merriment as soon as they have vanished. But we must one day begin life in sober earnest. We must look at ourselves as a society. It's time we tried to grasp something of our social position, or, at least, to make a beginning in that direction. A great writer, translator's note, Gogol, of the last epoch, comparing Russia to a swift Troika galloping to an unknown goal, exclaims, O Troika, bird-like Troika, who invented thee? And adds, in proud ecstasy, that all the peoples of the world stand aside respectfully to make way for the recklessly galloping Troika to pass. That may be. They may stand aside, respectfully or no. But in my poor opinion, the great writer ended his book in this way, either in an excess of childish and naive optimism, or simply in fear of the censorship of the day. For if the Troika were drawn by his heroes, Sobakevich, Nozdryov, Chichikov, it could reach no rational goal, whoever might be driving it. And those were the heroes of an older generation. Ours are worse specimens still. At this point, Ippolit Kirillovich's speech was interrupted by applause. The liberal significance of this smile was appreciated. The applause was, it's true, of brief duration, so that the President did not think it necessary to caution the public, and only looked severely in the direction of the offenders. But Ippolit Kirillovich was encouraged. He had never been applauded before. He had been all his life unable to get a hearing, and now he suddenly had an opportunity of securing the ear of all Russia. What, after all, is this Karamazov family, which has gained such an unenviable notoriety throughout Russia? He continued. Perhaps I am exaggerating, but it seems to me that certain fundamental features of the educated class of today are reflected in this family picture, only, of course, in miniature, like the sun in a drop of water. Think of that unhappy, vicious, unbridled old man who has met with such a melancholy end, the head of a family, beginning life of noble birth, but in a poor dependent position. Through an unexpected marriage he came into a small fortune, a petty knave, a toady and buffoon, of fairly good, though undeveloped intelligence. He was, above all, a money-lender, who grew bolder with growing prosperity. His abject and servile characteristics disappeared. His malicious and sarcastic cynicism was all that remained. On the spiritual side he was undeveloped, while his vitality was excessive. He saw nothing in life but sensual pleasure, and he brought his children up to be the same. 
he had no feelings for his duties as a father. He ridiculed those duties. He left his little children to the servants, and was glad to be rid of them, forgot about them completely. The old man's maxim was, Après moi le déluge. Translator's note, After me the deluge. He was an example of everything that is opposed to civic duty, of the most complete and malignant individualism. The world may burn for aught I care, so long as I am all right. And he was all right. He was content. He was eager to go on living in the same way for another twenty or thirty years. He swindled his own son and spent his money, his material inheritance, on trying to get his mistress from him. No, I don't intend to leave the prisoner's defense altogether to my talented colleague from Petersburg. I will speak the truth myself. I can well understand what resentment he had heaped up in his son's heart against him. But enough. Enough of that unhappy old man. He has paid the penalty. Let us remember, however, that he was a father and one of the typical fathers of today. Am I unjust, indeed, in saying that he is typical of many modern fathers? Alas, many of them only differ in not openly professing such cynicism, for they are better educated, more cultured, but their philosophy is essentially the same as his. Perhaps I am a pessimist, but you have agreed to forgive me. Let us agree beforehand. You need not believe me, but let me speak. Let me speak what I have to say, and remember something of my words. Now for the children of this father, this head of a family. One of them is the prisoner before us. All the rest of my speech will deal with him. Of the other two, I will speak only cursorily. The elder one is of those modern young men of brilliant education and vigorous intellect, who has lost all faith in everything. He has denied and rejected much already, like his father. We have all heard him. He was a welcome guest in local society. He never concealed his opinions, quite the contrary, in fact, which justifies me in speaking rather openly of him now, of course, not as an individual, but as a member of the Karamazov family. Another personage closely connected with the case died here by his own hand last night. I mean, an afflicted idiot, formerly the servant, and possibly the illegitimate son of Fyodor Pavlovich, Smerdyakov. At the preliminary inquiry, he told me with hysterical tears how the young Ivan Karamazov had horrified him by his spiritual audacity. Everything in the world is lawful according to him, and nothing must be forbidden in the future. That is what he always taught me. I believe that idiot was driven out of his mind by this theory, though, of course, the epileptic attacks from which he suffered and this terrible catastrophe have helped to unhinge his faculties. But he dropped one very interesting observation, 
which could have done credit to a more intelligent observer. And that is, indeed, why I've mentioned it. If there is one of the sons that is like Fyodor Pavlovich in character, it is Ivan Fyodorovich. With that remark, I conclude my sketch of his character, feeling it indelicate to continue further. Oh, I don't want to draw any further conclusions and croak like a raven over the young man's future. We've seen today in this court that there are still good impulses in his young heart, that family feeling has not been destroyed in him by lack of faith and cynicism, which have come to him rather by inheritance than by the exercise of independent thought. Then the third son. Oh, he is a devout and modest youth, who does not share his elder brother's gloomy and destructive theory of life. He has sought to cling to the ideas of the people, or to what goes by that name in some circles of our intellectual classes. He clung to the monastery. He was within an ace of becoming a monk. He seems to me to have betrayed unconsciously and so early that timid despair which leads so many in our unhappy society, who dread cynicism and its corrupting influences, and mistakenly attribute all the mischief to European enlightenment, to return to their native soil, as they say, to the bosom, so to speak, of their mother earth, like frightened children, yearning to fall asleep on the withered bosom of their decrepit mother, and to sleep there forever, only to escape the horrors that terrify them. For my part, I wish the excellent and gifted young man every success. I trust that youthful idealism and impulse towards the ideas of the people may never degenerate, as often happens, on the moral side into gloomy mysticism, and on the political into blind chauvinism, two elements which are even a greater menace to Russia than the premature decay due to misunderstanding and gratuitous adoption of European ideas, from which his elder brother is suffering. Two or three people clapped their hands at the mention of chauvinism and mysticism. Ippolit Kirillovich had been, indeed, carried away by his own eloquence. All this had little to do with the case in hand, to say nothing of the fact of its being somewhat vague, but the stickly and consumptive man was overcome by the desire to express himself once in his life. People said afterwards that he was actuated by unworthy motives in his criticism of Ivan, because the latter had on one or two occasions got the better of him in argument, and Hippolyte Kirillovich, remembering it, tried now to take his revenge. But I don't know whether it was true. All this was only introductory, however, and the speech passed to more direct consideration of the case. But to return to the eldest son, Hippolyte Kirillovich went on, he is the prisoner before us. We have his life, and his actions, too, before us. The fatal day has come, and all has been brought to the surface. While his brothers seem to stand for Europeanism, and the principles of the people, 
he seems to represent Russia as she is. Oh, not all Russia, not all, God preserve us if it were. Yet, here we have her, our mother Russia, the very scent and sound of her. Oh, he is spontaneous, he is a marvellous mingling of good and evil. He is a lover of culture and Schiller. Yet he brawls in taverns and plucks out the beards of his boon companions. Oh, he too can be good and noble. But only when all goes well within him. What is more, he can be carried off his feet, positively carried off his feet by noble ideals. But only if they come of themselves, if they fall from heaven for him, if they need not be paid for. He dislikes paying for anything, but is very fond of receiving, and that's so with him in everything. Oh, give him every possible good in life. He couldn't be content with less, and put no obstacle in his way, and he will show that he too can be noble. He is not greedy, no, but he must have money, a great deal of money, and you will see how generously, with what scorn of filthy lucre, he will fling it all away in the reckless dissipation of one night. But if he has not money, he will show what he is ready to do to get it when he is in great need of it. But all this later, let us take events in their chronological order. First we have before us a poor, abandoned child, running about in the backyard without boots on his feet, as our worthy and esteemed fellow-citizen of foreign origin, alas, expressed it just now. I repeat it again. I yield to no one the defence of the criminal. I am here to accuse him, but to defend him also. Yes, I too am human. I too can weigh the influence of home and childhood on the character. But the boy grows up and becomes an officer. For a duel and other reckless conduct, he is exiled to one of the remote frontier towns of Russia. There he led a wild life as an officer. And, of course, he needed money money before all things, and so, after prolonged disputes, he came to a settlement with his father, and the last six thousand were sent to him. A letter is in existence in which he practically gives up his claim to the rest and settles his conflict with his father over the inheritance on payment of this six thousand. Then came his mating with a young girl of lofty character and brilliant education. Oh, I do not venture to repeat the details. You have only just heard them. Honor, self-sacrifice, were shown there, and I will be silent. The figure of the young officer, frivolous and profligate, doing homage to true nobility and a lofty ideal, was shown in a very sympathetic light before us. But the other side of the medal was unexpectedly turned to us immediately after in this very court.
Again, I will not venture to conjecture why it happened so. But there were causes. Some lady, bathed in tears of long-concealed indignation, alleged that he, he of all men, had despised her for her action, which, though incautious, reckless perhaps, was still dictated by lofty and generous motives. He, he, the girl's betrothed, looked at her with that smile of mockery, which was more insufferable from him than from any one, and knowing that he had already deceived her, he had deceived her, believing that she was bound to injure everything for him, even treachery. She intentionally offered him three thousand roubles, and clearly, too clearly, let him understand that she was offering him money to deceive her. Well, will you take it or not? Are you so lost to shame? was the dumb question in her scrutinizing eyes. He looked at her, saw clearly what was in her mind. He's admitted here before you that he understood it all, appropriated that three thousand unconditionally, and squandered it in two days with the new object of his affections. What are we to believe, then? The first legend of the young officer, sacrificing his last farthing in a noble impulse of generosity, and doing reference to virtue, or this other revolting picture. As a rule, between two extremes one has to find the mean. But in the present case, this is not true. The probability is that in the first case he was genuinely noble, and in the second as genuinely base. And why? Because he was of the broad caramas of character. That's just what I'm leading up to, capable of combining the most incongruous contradictions, and capable of the greatest heights and of the greatest depths. Remember that brilliant remark made by a young observer, who has seen the caramas of family at close quarters, Mr. Rakitin. The sense of their own degradation, is as essential to those reckless, unbridled natures as the sense of their lofty generosity. And that's true. They need continually this unnatural mixture. Two extremes at the same moment, or they are miserable and dissatisfied, and their existence is incomplete. They are wide, wide as Mother Russia, they include everything, and put up with everything. By the way, gentlemen of the jury, we've just touched upon that three thousand roubles, and I will venture to anticipate things a little. Can you conceive that a man like that, on receiving that sum, and in such a way, at the price of such shame, such disgrace, such utter degradation, could have been capable that very day, of setting apart half that sum, that very day, and sewing it up in a little bag, and would have had the firmness of character to carry it about with him for a whole month afterwards, in spite of every temptation, and his extreme need of it. Neither in drunken debauchery, in taverns, 
nor when he was flying into the country, trying to get from God knows whom. The money so essential to him to remove the object of his affections from being tempted by his father. Did he bring himself to touch that little bag? Why? If only to avoid abandoning his mistress to the rival of whom he was so jealous, he would have been certain to have opened that bag, and to have stayed at home, to keep watch over her, and to await the moment when she would say to him at last, I am yours, and to fly with her far from their fatal surroundings. But no, he did not touch his talisman, and what is the reason he gives for it? The chief reason, as I have just said, was that when she would say, I am yours, take me where you will, he might have the wherewithal to take her. But that first reason, in the prisoner's own words, was of little weight beside the second. While I have that money on me, he said, I am a scoundrel, not a thief, for I can always go to my insulted betrothed, and laying down half the sum I have fraudulently appropriated, I can always say to her, You see, I've squandered half your money, and shown I am a weak and immoral man, and if you like, a scoundrel. I use the prisoner's own expressions. But, though I am a scoundrel, I am not a thief. For, if I had been a thief, I shouldn't have brought you back this half of the money, but should have taken it as I did the other half. A marvellous explanation. This frantic but weak man, who could not resist the temptation of accepting the three thousand roubles at the price of such disgrace, this very man, suddenly develops the most stoical firmness, and carries about a thousand roubles without daring to touch it. Does that fit in at all with the character we have analysed? No. And I venture to tell you how the real Dmitri Karamazov would have behaved in such circumstances, if he really had brought himself to put away the money. At the first temptation, for instance, to entertain the woman with whom he had already squandered half the money, he would have unpicked his little bag and have taken out some hundred roubles, for why should he have taken back precisely half the money, that is, fifteen hundred roubles? Why not fourteen hundred? He could just as well have said then that he was not a thief, because he brought back fourteen hundred roubles. Then, another time, he would have unpicked it again, and taken out another hundred, and then a third, and then a fourth, and before the end of the month he would have taken the last note but one, feeling that if he took back only a hundred, it would answer the purpose, for a thief would have stolen it all. And then he would have looked at this last note, and have said to himself, "'Tis really not worth while to give back one hundred. Let's spend that, too. That's how the real Dmitri Karamazov, as we know him, would have behaved.' One cannot imagine anything more incongruous with the actual fact than this legend of the little bag. Nothing could be more inconceivable 
but we shall return to that later. After touching upon what had come out in the proceedings concerning the financial relations of father and son, and arguing again and again that it was utterly impossible from the facts known to determine which was in the wrong, Ippolit Kirillovich passed to the evidence of the medical experts in reference to Mitya's fixed idea about the three thousand owing him. End of chapter 6 of Book 12 Recording by J. C. Guan, Montreal, March 2009